Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a girlfriend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Happy Hour. Today's guest is someone I have been wanting to interview for a while. In fact, I've been wanting to interview her ever since I first saw her at Catalyst West back in April of 2019. I saw her on stage sharing her story and I immediately knew I would love to bring her to The Happy Hour and let her share her story with you. That is Kayla Steckline and she's here with us today sharing the story of her husband's death by suicide how she is now a single mom to their two boys, and how she is continuing to have conversations about mental health and suicide in hopes that it would help those that listen to her voice. Today on the show, Kayla shares intimately the grief, loss, and sadness that she carries with her every day since the death of her husband. We talk about the difficulty of understanding mental health and how even with support, medical help, prayer, Sabbath, getting away, faith, this battle can still end with a tragic death. I am fully aware that this topic of mental health and suicide and the conversation that we have today might be painful for some of you, and I trust that you will use your own discretion whether or not today's show is one for you to listen to. Maybe have a friend listen first that knows you that you can trust to make sure that this show is not going to trigger anything for you. For those of you that do listen to the show, I want to encourage you, lean in close, pay attention to Kayla's words today. I know, and Kayla knows, that there is so much more that we could be doing to create spaces that support one another in mental health struggles, and this conversation is so valuable for those purposes. You are going to love Kayla, and you're going to immediately want to run to the store, run to Amazon, run to wherever you're getting books these days, and check out her book. We're going to talk about it in the show today. Friends, if you're new here or you've been here for a while, but you haven't yet subscribed to the show, would you consider doing that today wherever you listen to podcasts? Will you just subscribe? That way you will never miss an episode and it helps us get the show out to more people. Also, if you feel like it while you're there, we would love a five-star review and rating from you over on iTunes. Super easy. We'll take all the stars you can give us and that definitely helps more people find out about the show. Okay, friends, here is my conversation with my friend Kayla. Hey, Kayla, welcome to the happy hour. Hey, Jamie, thanks so much for having me. Honored to be here. I'm so glad you're here. I've been wanting to chat with you in person, like forever. And here we are doing what everyone else is doing, Zoom. I know, in fact, I think it was last March or was it earlier in the end of last year when we tried to maybe get together when I was out in California? It was somewhere around then. You were here for Better Together. Yes. Yeah. And it almost worked and then it didn't. Okay. Introduce yourself to all my listeners. 
Sure, yeah. My name's Kayla Steckline. I live in Southern California. I'm a single mom. I have three beautiful blue-eyed boys. Right now they're four, six, and almost eight years old. And we're just living life out here, doing our best to rebuild our life. I love that so much. Well, we're going to talk about your story. I remember the very first time I saw you speak was at Catalyst. Yeah. You did an interview at Catalyst, and I saw you speak, and I'll tell you later that I left that, A, so impressed with you and wanting to get to know you, your story, and just be friends. But you know, it's weird to be like, hey, can we be friends? That's weird when people do that. But that's how I felt in that moment. I was like, oh, I want to be friends with her. But you taught me something really important that day. And can I tell you what you taught me? Sure. So that would have been maybe a year and a half after your husband passed away or a year, six no, months. Stop it. Oh my months. gosh. Yeah. Six. Oh, cause it was the spring. I'm, I'm, I'm like having a moment over here of remembering thing. Okay. So here's what you taught me. Your husband had passed away less than six months earlier. And you said in that interview, and I have never forgotten this since that day, you educated me. You said, my husband died by suicide. And then you went on to say, like, my husband didn't commit suicide. He would have never chosen that. And Kayla, can I tell you that I immediately wrote that down on my phone and wondered how many times have I said this person committed suicide and you taught me that day that it's not a choice. And I'm so grateful for that. I really am. And you changed my thinking on a really hard subject and... I want to talk about that with you today. I mean, you have a book coming out in about a week, September 8th. You have this book coming out called Fear Gone Wild, where you tell your story of you and your husband. And I've been reading some of it. And first of all, can I just say, I love when you talk about Andrew. Like, I can see you guys, like the way you describe yourself as a wife. I just, I look at y'all and I'm like, oh my gosh, how beautiful. So I love your writing. I'm loving your book so much. But you are now a part of a club you would have never wanted to be in. And so the first thing I want to say to you before we even start chatting is I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that this is a club that you never wanted to be in. And I also want to have some really good conversation with you today about mental illness. Because me as someone who has never personally struggled with mental illness, it can be confusing. And you know what I appreciate about your book? I, look, I'm doing all the chatting. When I'm, People are like, when are you going to let her talk? But I'm just so appreciative of you. And I've been diving into your book today. And you know what I appreciate about your book is that you've been really honest and vulnerable in there about like, I don't get this and I don't understand this. And you even talk about when Andrew was diagnosed with depression, you're like, when's this going to get better? So can you go back and talk about discovering that your husband had mental illness? Because here's what I know of people that are listening. I don't think there's anyone that can be listening to this conversation that doesn't know someone, heard of a friend or someone at their church who's struggling. And so can you talk with us about what that was like for you with Andrew's diagnosis? Yeah, you know, there's such a huge learning curve when it comes to mental illness. And so it really, for me personally, came out of nowhere. He had been suffering with panic attacks and anxiety, very debilitating panic attacks. Those were some of the first warning signs. Andrew was always kind of an anxious, more intense person, just very driven, driven for excellence, driven to succeed, the kind of guy that could set his mind to something and he would like see it through completion, like just super super driven, motivated man. In my eyes, in my mind, like Superman, like he was resilient. He rose to the occasion every time. Like he was such an incredible leader, 
a wonderful husband, a wonderful dad, but he always struggled with this underlying anxiety that was always there. And so after his dad passed away from leukemia, his dad was the senior pastor of the church and it was a four-year leukemia journey. And my husband really stepped up to the plate during that four years. He was 23 years old and helping lead the church and speak regularly on Sundays at a church of like 4,000 people, staff of 30 people, so large growing, thriving church, and he was thrust into this position of leadership at a very young age. And he was skilled and talented. And so everyone, you know, applauded him and like agreed with it. And so he was handed the baton in 2015 at 27 years old to take over the church. And just, I think it was four months later, October of 2015, his dad passed away from leukemia. And Andrew never took time to grieve. He took two weeks off, And then he immediately went back and preached a series on heaven. And that was just him. That was his personality. He was always putting the church first, probably before his own physical health and mental health and spiritual health. He was putting the church first. And that's probably the case for a lot of pastors. He just cared so much and was so passionate about the local church. He never wanted to be a celebrity pastor. He never wanted to write books. Like he just wanted to serve the local church with his life. And I was honored to do it with him. Like I really loved being a pastor's wife. When he died, I was reading the book Divine Privilege by Kay Warren about being a pastor's wife. Like I loved it. It was an honor, one of the greatest honors of my life. And so his dad passed away. He didn't take any, hardly any time to grieve. And I think it was kind of just this downward spiral from there. You know, he became the lead pastor without his father there to really help lead him and guide him and be his mentor. So he felt very alone. And a lot of pastors feel very alone. You know, they say it's lonely at the top and the organization rises and falls at the top. And it's easy to blame the person at the top. And he experienced all of that. And so I think that there were some warning signs of depression early on that I just completely missed and that he completely missed as well. And so in the fall of 2017, it started with these really intense panic attacks that were happening like two to three times a week, very debilitating. He would go try to go to sleep at night and he would get this burning, intense pain in his chest that felt like a heart attack. Like he would Mm -hmm. describe it as feeling like a heart attack and his extremities would go numb. His hands and his feet would go numb. He'd be trembling. I mean, he would be doing everything he could to try to get them to go away. And it was just really, really sad. I mean, as a wife, I would like try to do everything I could and there was nothing I could do to touch this raging fear that was going on inside his body. And really that's where I got the title for the book, Fear Gone Wild. Like I had heard panic described as fear gone wild. It's Mm. this uncontrollable fear that completely takes over your body and transforms you. Yeah, I could tell he was having a panic attack just by the look in his eye. And so there were some earlier warning signs with panic attacks and anxiety. And then in April 2018, he was officially diagnosed with depression after spending some time in the hospital with a major panic attack. We all just kind of said, enough is enough. This guy needs to rest. He never stopped. Like, you're going to go on a sabbatical and we're going to figure this out. Mm -hmm. But I never saw it coming. Like, I'll never forget sitting in the psychiatrist with him. And the psychiatrist turned and looked at me and said, your husband has depression. And I was so shocked. I was so stunned that I didn't say anything. Mm. We walked to the car, sat down in the car, and I turned and looked at my husband and I said, how did we end up here? 
And he was actually relieved to have a diagnosis. He was relieved to finally know what was going on inside of his body because he was so confused. It was this real physical illness that he was experiencing and he couldn't figure out where it was coming from. So he was confident and the doctor was confident that he was going to recover quickly. They got him on some medication. They thought he would bounce right back with rest and medication and he would be back to work in no time. Mm. So that was early in 2018 that this happened. You said a few times that there were some signs that you and Andrew might have missed as well. Looking back, it's like, it's hard and good to look back, right? Because you look back and go like, man, how did I not see that? Or like, man, I'm glad I can talk about this now. When you say that there were signs that you missed, what do you mean by that? For him, you know, sometimes there would be a lack of motivation. And for a guy that's a very driven, oh, successful, yeah. it was not his norm. guy, not his norm. There would be days after his dad passed away where he didn't want to go to work. And he only went into the office one day a week. I mean, he mostly worked from home and he went in one day a week to do meetings. And there would be some days where he couldn't even get himself to go in that one day a week. And I never put two and two together. Like in hindsight, like 2020 is so clear, but I never put two and two together. So I would say lack of motivation. I would also say like isolation. Um, Andrew was never one for like, He's never like an extrovert. He was more introverted. So we only just had a handful of close friends. But I would say after his dad passed away and he became the lead pastor, like that circle got even smaller. Um, And that's, you know, that's common for pastors as well. I mean, 70% of pastors would say they don't have someone they could consider as a close friend. And so isolation, lack of motivation and exhaustion. Um, He suffered from migraines off and really struggled to get out of bed in the morning. So some of those things I think were happening in the years prior. And then he just hit a wall and his Mm. body was like every light on the dashboard was going off and his body was like, we're done. Yeah. Time to take a break. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking just when I was walking over here to my office, I knew I was gonna be chatting with you. And I thought of Aaron and I've been married for 20, almost 20 years, 19 years. And he's been in ministry the entire time. And I thought I could think of three or four, not just people I read about in the news, three or four people that Aaron knew, like he had their phone number that were in ministry who had died by suicide. And you just said 70% of, you know, pastors would say they don't have close friends. I think I read a stat, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that 45,000 Americans die every year by suicide. Is that right? I know worldwide it's 800,000. Jeez Louise. So that was just Americans. And it said for every death, there are 22 attempts. And so it's not as though... It's more within church and church leaderships, but I feel like it can feel that way sometimes. Do you agree? And can you talk with me about why that might be that we that it looks that way? And is it a reality? You know, I think um, I think it just hits differently That's, yeah. because there's a stigma um, surrounding mental health, and especially in Christian culture, there's this stigma and this belief that if you love God enough, and that if you have enough faith. You will not struggle with depression. You will not struggle with anxiety and you will Mm. never struggle with suicidal thoughts. And that's just not true. Yeah, it's not true at all. And you're right because the church has said often that you can just, you need to pray more. Are you reading your Bible? All of the things. I remember years ago, I had had some situational um, panic attacks as well. And I got on some medicine and I had a few people like say to me, like you need more faith and that's why this would be go away. And to hear that when you're in the middle of it feels like like you're on the ground and someone's punching you. And mine was very situational and 
praise God, like everything, I'm not suffering from that anymore. But okay, so after Andrew goes on sabbatical, and you tell a story in the book, which I was just like, it almost made me cry. You're talking about that Easter Sunday when he had a very debilitating panic attack backstage, like before he was about to preach, and then went on and preached. And you said, uh, that you were in the green room while he was preaching. And look, at, I'm about to cry because it made me cry as a wife of you saying you're in the green room with the worship team. You're crying. He's on stage preaching and nobody knows. And I felt your aloneness in that moment. And so talk to me as the spouse. Like we can, you told us in the book and we'll talk a little bit more about like what Andrew was going through, but what was that like for you in those months, in those weeks? Maybe start here. What was it like leading up to the sabbatical? Because the sabbatical was where the church leadership was like, hey, you need a break. I have a feeling that during the sabbatical, it was even, you have a different story of what it felt like. So what was it like leading up to sabbatical for you as the spouse? Yeah, I'm like tearing up as well, just hearing you talk about it. It was really, really lonely, like very, very lonely. And I think I, as a pastor's wife, like my close circle of friends all attended our church. And so I felt like I couldn't confide in them. I felt like I couldn't tell them the reality of what was going on at home, the anxiety and the panic attacks and the restlessness and the sleepless nights that we were having when he was struggling with panic attacks. I felt like I couldn't confide in anybody because Andrew was their pastor and I didn't want them to see him as weak or not capable or not able to do his job. I didn't want them to be sitting in the rows on Sunday and looking at him preach from the stage and thinking that he's a phony. And so I felt like I had this like burden that I was carrying alone. I was able to talk about it with family, but that was really about it. I, looking back, I wish that I would have, like I was screaming on the inside. I needed to have friends. I needed to tell people. So I would say to pastor's wives, like if your husband is struggling with depression or your husband's struggling with anxiety or your husband's struggling with mental illness and you're the pastor's wife, like you have to reach out to people. You have to let people in. You have to invite people into your pain. Like that's one of my biggest regrets as a spouse is not inviting people into my pain, not only Andrew's pain, but my pain and the co burdening of his mental illness. Hmm. So when you guys did invite people in, because I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Easter is when kind of people stepped in and said, okay, this is a little bit more than we thought. You need a sabbatical. Did you find now that it's like, okay, people know that Andrew's been struggling with panic attacks, depression. Did you then feel as though, okay, I can now talk to some friends about this? On a macro level, yes. Like the church was so supportive. The board got on stage and told the church from the stage, Andrew's been struggling with panic attacks. He's been struggling with anxiety. We think he's burnt out. He needs to rest. He's taking the sabbatical. So they were super honest, which I applaud the church for. Like, I'm so glad they didn't try to cover it up and say something else. They were super honest. And so we received, you know, hundreds of letters in the mail, gift cards in the mail, words of encouragement, people that had struggled with depression and panic attacks, sharing their stories and encouraging Andrew and thanking Andrew for the way that he did step up when his dad was sick. Like, The church in so many ways, I mean, I know the rise and fall of the church isn't up to the lead person. I know that it's God's church. Like I understand that completely, but in so many ways, because Andrew stepped up to the plate when his dad was sick, he saved the church from falling apart. Mm -hmm. I mean, he really did. And I can say that as his wife, I mean, there would be Saturday nights when his dad was supposed to preach on Sunday, but ended up in the hospital because he was still preaching through his leukemia journey. And there would be Saturday nights where Andrew would get a phone call and you have to come up with a message for Sunday. 
day. So he was running hard, running fast, and the church loved him. Like the church loved him. They supported him. They were with him. They were for him. I think where we felt the loneliness and isolation more was on a micro level. And, you know, family was in on what was going on and family was supportive. But like I said, Andrew was pretty introverted. And so he didn't let a lot of people into his pain. There were just a handful of close friends that he uh, felt comfortable being around our house and being in season with him. And Mm. so it really was me and him, boys and his family. That's really how it felt. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... 
Yeah, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Can you tell me when, I think the Andrew started this blog, God's Got This, when his dad was going through leukemia. Was that something that carried over into his personal life with talking about depression and talking about panic attacks? Did he use that as a place to kind of minister to other people in that way? You know what? No, it wasn't until after he passed away that God's Got This became something bigger and kind of morphed into that. It was this phrase when Andrew's dad was diagnosed, he pulled each of his kids into the ICU room separately and said, I've been diagnosed with a leukemia and there's a kind you want and a kind you don't want. And I have the kind you don't want, but God's got this. And so Andrew in the hospital at Cedar, Cedar Sinai Hospital in LA pulled out his laptop and made this website, God's Got This. And we made wristbands and we've like sold hundreds of thousands of wristbands all around the world. Like it's this really beautiful message that no matter what you go through, God is in control. And we truly believe that, you know, that message has carried us through the leukemia journey. That message carried us through. We had a son that was in the NICU for a month and that message carried us through that. And now this message has carried us through mental illness and suicide and loss once again. Mm -hmm. And so it is that message of like, no matter what you go through, no matter what wilderness seasons you walk through, like God is with you, even when it feels like he's not. Mm. Even when it feels like he's abandoned you, even when it feels like he's not answering your prayers and he's far away, like God is right there and he cares so deeply. And so I know for me personally, like that phrase has held me up so much. How did that phrase hold Andrew up that summer? Yeah, you know, he was running to God. Like, that's the thing. Like, he really genuinely was running to God. I remember coming in. He was in the bedroom a lot of the time, resting. I mean, he probably spent 50% of the time just in our bed resting. And the majority of the time when I'd walk into the room, he'd have these big silver headphones on. Kind of like beats, these big Mm -hmm. headphones, and he would be blasting worship music and crying. And so he was running to God and he was begging God for a miracle and he was begging God for intervention and he was begging God to take away his pain. Mm. So he really was clinging to that promise that God's got this, even this big ugly darkness that he didn't understand. And there was a spiritual warfare component there as well that I talk about in the book. There's a whole chapter. I called it Stranger Things. And, you know, there was some real physical, spiritual warfare, like things that he was seeing um, that were very terrifying to him. I don't know if it was hallucination with the medication or mental illness, but it was very real for him. And through the whole time, I mean, he was running to God, declaring the promises of God, like praying out loud. We had people over at our house to pray over every room, like... We were all running to God. When I think back to what that summer must have been for you, you talk in the book about a trip that you and Andrew took and probably hold some dear memories, maybe some difficult memories, but what a gift that you were able to receive. Can you talk about that, y'all's time together on that trip? Yeah, it was so special. It was in June of 2018, and we took off on my birthday. It was my 29th birthday. 
And we stopped over in Vegas and saw a show and stayed a night. And then we went to Park City and stayed for a few weeks out there. And I'll never forget, there's one day, I think I talk about it in the book. I called it Andrew's Adventure Day. And he loved renting dune buggies and off-roading. And so we rented this dune buggy and we went off-roading for the day. And he was the happiest that he had been, that I had seen him in months. Mm -hmm. I mean, genuine smiles spread across his face all day, like genuinely happy. And I remember saying to him as we're like, like on these windy, windy roads on the mountaintop, it was so beautiful. I remember saying to him, like, this place feels like heaven. Like we really had this like heaven sent moment, this beautiful moment in the midst of this really dark season. And I got to take my boys back there to the same exact place that we went on that dune buggy in the same exact dune buggy on Father's Day of this year. We went back and did that. And I told the boys, this is one of your dad's favorite things to do. And he would have wanted to do this with you on Father's Day. And like, it was so beautiful and painful, like all wrapped into the same package, like so painful that he's not there. I'm in a dune buggy by myself with these three little kids. Like we are a sight to see on these trails and so painful that, that I'm the one taking them to do that on Father's Day. Like it breaks my heart for them that their mom is taking them to do special things like that on Father's Day. But also what a beautiful gift that they can remember their dad and experience some of the same things that he loved to do. Some of the questions that people have when they hear tragic stories like this and and what you taught me that I said at the beginning of this show is that Andrew didn't commit suicide and he would have never chosen this path for his life, but he died by suicide. I can, that in my brain goes, okay, like I understand what you're saying. When you look back on those weeks leading up to Andrew's death. For me in my head, it's like, I almost need to like justify like there had to have been like some major change, like just crazy things happening. But I don't think that has to be true. Like, what does that look like in someone's family and life who's battling something? What were the, were there signs? Were you concerned? Or were you like, we're going to beat this? Like we're on the up and up. God's got this. Andrew's doing better. What was it like for y'all's house and those weeks leading up to Andrew's death? Yeah, you know, we all really thought he was getting better. Like the team of doctors that were surrounding him, there really was a team. He was seeing a psychiatrist every other week. We were seeing a therapist together for two hours every single week. He was seeing a natural homeopathic doctor on a bunch of vitamins. Like we were doing everything we knew to do to get him better. And the doctors actually thought he was getting better. And so they released him to go back to work at the end of July. And he hit the ground running August 1st and delivered two powerful messages on mental illness. Mm. He called the series Hot Mess. And I mean, he was using his own personal experience as the example. And it was powerful. I mean, church was packed out. People were sitting on the ground. They were giving him a standing ovation. Like they were so glad he was back. And they were so proud of him for being so brave to talk about a subject that at the time, not a lot of pastors were talking about. I think that that's changed now. But two years ago at the time, like not a lot of pastors were addressing that. And so for him to use his own personal example was beautiful and powerful and really helped a lot of people. And so he did two beautiful messages, headed into the third week, had his third message ready to go, already had it written, was excited about what he was going to speak about on Sunday. 
I'll never forget the day before the suicide happened. He posted a little video onto his Instagram feed. He was sitting in his home office and he was looking out the window at the waterfall in our front yard. And it was so peaceful. The wind was blowing through the trees. And he said, can't complain about the views and the sounds from my home study. Like he loved his job. He loved what he was doing. Like he knew God was using him and he just had a really bad day. And I think that sometimes when someone has a really fragile mind, he was still healing. When he came back to work, he told the staff at a big staff meeting, he told the staff he was at about 65%. He knew he wasn't at 100%. He knew that he wasn't at 100% well, full, whole, like healed. He was still healing and he was hoping to ease back into his responsibility. And so he just had a really bad day. And unfortunately, there was some news that happened on staff and and his broken mind just was unable to process the news logically and come up with solutions like he normally would. And so he had like a mental breakdown. I know that's not really a term that's used anymore, but that's like the only way I could describe it was a mental breakdown. And unfortunately, the next day, as we were all gathered together, just not very far away from him, coming up with solutions, finding a guest speaker for Sunday, like taking the, we knew that he was still sick. And that was a big sign to us. Like, okay, this guy's not well, like mm-hmm. we're going to take the next step. Like maybe he's not ready to go back to work. And so that morning I'm like on the phone with pastors, trying to find an inpatient treatment center. We're scheduling people to speak on Sunday. Like we're making all the arrangements that he can go continue receiving healing and treatment. And as we were doing that, he attempted suicide. So we Mm. really and truly never saw it coming and Mm. were completely blindsided. And I can say confidently that I know that Andrew never saw it coming. And what I heard from his psychiatrist after was that 90% of suicides are impulsive. And that's why for the majority of suicides, there's no suicide note. It's an impulsive, in the moment, overcome with pain. A sheet is pulled up in the mind and the mind is unable to make a rational decision. And it feels like the only way to escape the unbearable pain is to die. Hmm. That's a hard statistic to take in. And it's one that I would not have thought, you know, as someone who doesn't know a lot about mental illness, I would have, if you would have given me three numbers, I would have never guessed that number, that it was that high, that it would be an impulsive decision. You know, September is National or America Suicide Awareness Month. What is the one thing that you would want people listening to right now to know about mental illness, to know about suicide? What would you want someone to understand and know? That suicide isn't selfish. I think that was the number one thing that I heard from people. For the majority, like the response from the world, you know, our story went viral. Our family picture was shared all around the world. All of a sudden, I'm the sad story on the internet. It was just insane, mind-boggling. And the number one thing I would get from people was how could he do that to his family? Like that is the most selfish thing he could ever do. And I'll never forget the one time that Andrew told me that he was struggling with suicidal thoughts. We were sitting in the kitchen at the kitchen counter and he said that he was up in the middle of the night the night before and he had all his staff organization charts spread all over the counter and he thought about killing himself. And my immediate response to that, my my reaction, it wasn't even a response, it was a reaction to that, was Andrew, that's the most selfish thing you could ever do. 
And now I've learned in hindsight that suicide is not selfish. And I can confidently say that mm-hmm. suicide is not selfish and that Andrew had a real physical illness and that the suicide was a result of a real physical mental illness that was out of his control. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that that knowledge of you getting to that spot is helping you as a parent, is helping you as a mom. Because now, like you said, you're a single mom. You've got three beautiful boys and you all have to have these conversations a million times with your kids. And it sounds to me like that realization for you to say out loud that his suicide was not selfish is going to be a very, very important thing for your boys to know and understand. When you said that to Andrew in the kitchen that time, what was his reaction to that? Kayla, that's not what you say to someone who's struggling with suicidal thoughts. You need to come up with something better to say. I'll never forget it. I could hear his voice in my head as I said that out loud to you. Wow. I'll never forget it. I truly didn't understand. Like I deeply, truly did not understand. And I think now because through my grief journey, I've struggled with suicidal thoughts. Like I have really genuinely struggled with suicidal thoughts because the pain is so overwhelming. And because he's gone and I'm handed this new life, it's like this pain that doesn't just go away. It's this pain that I have to learn how to live with, that I have to welcome in, that I have to create space for, that I have to try to get comfortable with and just accept that that pain is going to be a part of my life and that it's not just going to go away. And there are some days where that reality is so overwhelming that dying sounds like a better option than trying to live this life every day. And so I feel like now after he's gone, I have this genuine like empathy and compassion and understanding that I wish that that myself sitting at the kitchen counter that day. It's like I missed my one shot, my one opportunity to like really embrace him and hold him and like ask him about it. I wish I would have asked him about it every single day. Like that's a regret that I'll live with for the rest of my life. Like I wish I would have seen that as an alarm sounding saying like this guy's really sick and he's thinking about suicide. I think I brushed it off so quickly. And I think that happens often. I think we, we say to ourselves, they would never do that. Yeah, Like we truly believe they would never do that. And then they do. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we think I'll convince them not to by telling them you wouldn't do that to me. Well, as much as you don't want to be in this club and would have never wanted to be in this club, I do think, I don't think, I do know that in a way that we can never understand, it doesn't make sense. And would never want this to actually happen for this to happen that you're teaching so many people that are going to have that said to them at one point in their life that someone's going to say that to them and they're going to remember and they're going to take your advice would your advice be to ask them about it every single day i would say to listen I would say to ask questions, questions like, do you have a suicide plan? How often do you think about it? What problem are you trying to solve through suicide? I would say doing whatever you can do to crawl into that dark place with them and just sit with them. Shut your mouth and sit with them and try to get some perspective of what life is like from their point of view. I didn't try to do that. I was too tired and too close to it that I didn't try to do that. Yeah. Well, I've told you this already. I'm really sorry 
that your Andrew is not here. And I'm sorry that this is your story. On the flip side of that, I'm thankful for the way that you're using it to educate people about something that is really, really difficult to talk about. Let's talk about Kayla's life now. Single mom, three beautiful boys. I'm telling you, your boys are like the cutest little boys I've ever seen in my entire life. What has been for you, what have the joys been that you found in this, on the flip, on the other side of August of 2018? And then what, there's the obvious pain of Andrew not here, but what have been some of the surprising things that you could have never seen coming, good or bad? You know, that very first year, I'm so um, grateful that Andrew didn't pass away during this year because that would, I can't imagine, like my heart goes out to people that are grieving a loss in 2020. Mm -hmm. We've already lost so much and we're already grieving so much in 2020. Like my heart just goes out to people that are also walking through that. And so um, God provided so many opportunities for me and the boys to chase after and to seize like this beautiful life. I have this mantra, rebuilding beautiful. And it's really what I feel like I'm doing every single day. Like I had this beautiful life. I had everything I could have ever asked for and more. And all of that died with Andrew. All of that was buried in the ground with him when he died. And so it's like now I'm rebuilding this new life. And I genuinely deeply believe that it can still be beautiful. So I call it rebuilding beautiful. And and that first year, like God provided so many unique and special opportunities for us to travel the world. Even as a family, I got to go with my little boys to Israel. And it was so special the way that God orchestrated it. We ended up being at the Jordan River on the very first Father's Day after Andrew passed away. And I got to baptize my two older boys in the Jordan River on their very first Father's Day without their dad. Oh, Kayla, that's so beautiful. So there's like these really beautiful, sacred moments in the midst of all the ugly, horrific, painful moments. And I think that's what I'm learning about life. Like, I think life is made up of mostly painful moments. Like life is mostly hard and mundane and these like ordinary moments. And then there's these truly like beautiful heaven sent moments, like baptizing my boys in the Jordan River that we just have to catch and hold on Mm. to. And it's Mm -hmm. those moments that get us through all the ugly, hard, unbearable moments. Do you see your boys finding those moments as well? I do. Honestly, you wouldn't know unless you knew. Like, they're Mm -hmm. so resilient. They are so happy. They are so full of joy. Like, Andrew is part of our family. Like, his death and his life is something we talk about every single day. Even yesterday, I was sitting in the spa with my son, Jet, and he turned and looked at me and said, Mom, I'm not afraid to die. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, I was like, because if I die, I get to go be with daddy and I get to go to heaven and I can't wait, you know, I can't wait to die so I can go be with daddy and be in heaven. It's like death is such a part of our reality. Like they're growing up with the reality of one parent on earth and one parent in heaven. And that's all they'll ever know from here Mm -hmm. on out. And so it's really beautiful to see the way that they've processed that and owned that and accepted that. And I know it's going to be a lifelong journey for them, but their resilience has made me resilient. Their presence in my home has made me have to get out of bed every single day and like do all the things that I don't want to do, like get dressed and put on makeup and take them to school and pack lunches and get groceries. Like life doesn't stop. Life hasn't stopped for me since Andrew passed away. I don't get the luxury of just like curling up in a ball and sleeping for two months. Like I have to get up every day and I'm so thankful that God gave me the gift of those three Beautiful boys, three beautiful reasons to get out of the bed every single morning. I love that. You wrote your story 
In Fear Gone Wild, this book that came out just last week from when you're listening to this. Were you anxious about writing this all out in the world for people to see? You know what? No. I really felt like that God told me to do this. It was just so clear and it was coming at me from all different directions. I had authors and speakers and book agents and publishing companies like all reaching out to me within the first few months of his death. And like God made it so clear that I was supposed to write this book. Mm. And so writing this book for me was just being obedient to God. And for me, it's also like a gift that I can give my boys when they're older and we can read through it together. They can listen to the audio book of my voice, like reading it to them. And what a gift to them, you know, to see our love story and to see what happened to their dad and to grow in empathy and compassion for him. And so, you know, I never really worried about what other people thought about it. I never really worried about the message that I was carrying. Like it was always just about being obedient to God. And I truly believe that God would give me the words and equip me because I've never written a book before. And somehow I did. So if I can write a book, anybody can write a book. I like it. And it's really good, you guys. I'm like almost done with it. And I am probably going to finish today when we get off this call. So there, I just wanted to keep going and keep going. I do have one quick question that I just thought of as you were talking about how life and death is this conversation in your house. Probably more, I'm assuming, than it would be um, had Andrew not died. There's people listening who no doubt will have to walk through this tragedy as well in some way or another, whether that be someone that they know, someone in their immediate family, whatever it might be. What is your advice, encouragement for talking to children about suicide? What do you encourage parents with there? I would say to be honest. I've been very honest. I took a week after Andrew died. I waited a week to tell them and I talked to child life specialists and I did some research and I wanted to make sure that I approached it the right way. And so when I sat them down, I told them daddy did something that caused him to die. Mm -hmm. And so I started the conversation with them and I have yet to show my oldest son can read now. My youngest, my middle son is learning, but the cover of the book says the word suicide on it. And I have yet to explain that word to him and introduce that word to him. And I would say that like, I am afraid. I'm afraid of that conversation. And I'm afraid of introducing that word and what that word means and what the understanding that his peers have about that word too, and what they've learned from their homes. So I want him to feel confident in the language surrounding it and that daddy loved them and that he fought hard to stay and that it wasn't a choice. It wasn't a decision. Like he didn't choose this. This happened to him and he died by suicide. And so I know it's an ongoing conversation and crazy that I'll have to have it with a seven-year-old here pretty soon. But I think as a parent, like being the one that initiates those conversations and being the source that they hear the information from is so important that they're not finding out from other people. For me, it's really important that he's not seeing the cover of my book on somebody else's desk or on on somebody else's wherever and somebody else's home. Like it's so important to me that I introduce that word to him first. So yeah, it's complicated and messy and there's no perfect way to do it. Isn't that life complicated and messy and there's no perfect way to do it? So there we go. It's almost just like age appropriate, you know, like you're going to introduce age appropriate conversations and terms with your kids. I did not know that you waited a week to tell your boys. I'm going to ask you a question and I don't want this to be insensitive. Okay. So you can tell me if it is. I have thick skin. How is that even possible? I was so overwhelmed because it was so shocking. I was so overwhelmed. My dad kept the boys at his house for a week. and So they were just gone. 
Yeah, he told him that he was in the hospital and I just really needed the space to get my head on straight. And I actually cleaned out our house too. I wanted the information that I was sharing with them to match the environment of our home. So before they even came home, I cleaned out his side of the closet. I cleaned out his shoes out of the garage. Like I packed up all his stuff and put it in boxes because I didn't want them to think daddy was coming back. Did you have really smart people give you this advice? Or is this like you're really smart on your own and you came up with this? Not so much on that. I think that was more of like an intuition. Like this is what I need to do, to do for best me. For your family, yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. different for everybody. Some people wait yeah. years to clean that stuff out. But for me, I think it was going to be, I knew for myself it was going to be too painful to see that stuff. And so I think I assumed that my boys would feel the same yeah. way. You were being their mama and you were like, I'm going to help them through this the best way that I know how. Um, and that's what you did uh, for your boys. Kayla. I cannot tell you enough. I'm like proud of you. I'm proud of you as a friend who we've never actually sat down and had dinner together, but we will one day. I can guarantee it. But I'm proud of you for the journey that you're walking. Um, Your boys have a really great mom and I know they had a really great dad as well. And so thank you for being willing to be vulnerable with us because like I said before, your words are going to really, really um, awaken some people, help with understanding. And so I thank you for that. Um, Thank a lot. you so much, Jamie. So honored to sit and chat with you today. Thank you for being brave with me and having this conversation. I'm so grateful. I love it. I love it. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more thing before you go. What are you loving? What are you reading? I'm currently loving Henry Nouwen. I'm like reading a bunch of Henry Nouwen books. I recently read Life of the Beloved. And right now I'm I'm reading The Inner Voice of Love. I just love the way he approaches spirituality and God. And it's just very like warm and welcoming and inviting. I'm loving surfing with my boys. We went surfing all day Saturday and super fun. We all put on our wetsuits and I'm pushing them into waves and... Yeah, just fun. I, I love adventure. I love doing that kind of stuff with my kids and and seeking joy and seeking adventure. I love it. Well, thank you. Okay, your book, Fear Gone Wild, comes out September 8th. And so we will send everyone there and put all the links in the show notes. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Friends, you love Kayla, don't you? I knew that you would. Um, I do want to let you know that this next month is Suicide Awareness Month. And if this conversation is something that was new for you, or maybe it is one that you're unfamiliar with, I would encourage you to take time to learn more about how to be a friend to those who are struggling with mental illness, and especially those who are struggling with suicidal thoughts. 
There are many resources that we linked here in our show notes. You can go to jamieivy.com slash HH317. That's happy hour, episode 317, as well as information about pre-ordering Kayla's book, which releases on September 8th, and I cannot wait for you to get your hands on it. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper, and the music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell, and the whole thing is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. Friends, don't forget, if you're interested in knowing more about my newest book, UBU, which comes out October 1st, text the words UBU, no spaces, to 33777. Friends, enjoy your week. Share the show with a friend. Have a happy hour with a friend. I'll see you guys back here on Wednesday with my guest, the Giving Keys creator, Caitlin Crosby. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food service.